the one who is deserving of all praise, I magnify Him, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one eternal God. It's good to see each of you. We are glad for some friends visiting. And uh, as well, glad to see each of these who are home folk here at Spring Lake. Well, as we look this morning in John chapter 11 in the 11 o'clock service, I want to return there. In some measure, uh, it might seem appropriate that this message should have been brought beforehand. But I thought it was better for Sunday evening and the message this morning for the Sunday morning hour. But I want us to return to John 11 and look at those opening words. We'll read a good portion of Scripture from the 11th chapter of John. I'd like to invite you to read with me beginning at verse 1 and we'll read down through to verse 38. So we'll overlap some of the Scripture where we were this morning, but we'll go a good bit before it to read what I would give you by way of a title as Preamble to Resurrection. Preamble to Resurrection. We see these words that John records that give us the background to the resurrection of Lazarus. What's interesting is there's more detail in the preface to resurrection than there is actually in the action that marked the resurrection. And I believe there's some good lessons we can learn as we look at that relative to God's providence in our lives, things that uh, I believe we can benefit from as His people, and uh, seeing the way the Lord dealt with uh, these whom He loved. He loved Martha, He loved Mary, He loved Lazarus. Sometimes the way the Lord deals with those He loves doesn't make sense. I think it was one of the past who said, Lord, no wonder you have enemies. Look at how you treat your friends. Now that's from a human perspective, though. And that's where our failure to see and failure to behold God's ways of dealing with us, they're flawed. It's not that His ways are flawed, it's that often our perspective is. I know that's been... Mine about many small things in life. And so I, I need the Lord to fine-tune my thinking, and it's His Word that He uses to do that. That's the, that's the tool that He uses to baptize our brains. Uh, they need to be baptized. They need to be immersed so that we can, in the spirit of our mind, be renewed and look at life rightly. Let's read these words together again, beginning at verse 1 in John 11, and I'd invite your attention to them as we read through verse 38. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of of this world. 
But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had already lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem about fifteen furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth into the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Well, we intended to end our reading there. But uh, although we read those following words this morning, let's just read them again because of the reality of resurrection that takes place. Verse 39, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, 
come forth. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Trust our God will add his blessing tonight to his word, and may he indeed stamp and seal it to our souls. Let's pray. Father, we ask you as we come before you in the name of our worthy Savior, the one of whom we read in these blessed words, he is the resurrection and the life. Father, we come in his name and through his work, through his blood shed on our behalf and through his death for us, through his resurrection. And Father, even through that ascension in which he, Lord, has been seated now at your right hand, we ask you that you would by your spirit bless your word to our souls this evening. And grant us to hear your voice, Father, to learn from your word as we think of these words that give preface to resurrection. Father, I pray that you would grant us to learn more of your ways even as we look at your son and his dealings with Mary and Martha and with Lazarus. Christ's name, amen. Well, again, as we said in these words that accompany the resurrection of Lazarus written, we did read beyond and see that. You'll notice that there are just about four verses that focus more directly on the resurrection. There are about 38 or so that focus on those events that led up to the resurrection. If I were writing Scripture, I wouldn't have written it that way. But then I'm not the writer of Scripture. I would have focused on the dynamism of the uh, resurrection. I'd have probably given some play to that a little bit more. But the Spirit of God's not pleased to do that. The Spirit of God instead directs us to those events that preceded the resurrection, that which led up to it, And I believe part of the reason for that is, this is something that I believe often marks the Scriptures, but especially it seems the Gospels, there's a pastoral element that God includes in His Word so that we as His sheep can learn something about the way He deals with us. Something about His activity toward us, His activity with us, that we, I believe, oftentimes seem to miss Because of the way that God does deal with us, there are things that in life uh, we, we expect to be different. We look for along different lines. We look for along uh, what would be really our own expectations. And I think that's evident here with Mary and Martha. Because they send to the Lord Jesus to let them know about Lazarus' sick. Let's think about it together. And as we do, I'll try to be brief because we've got more verses today, tonight than we had this morning. We still managed to spin out a pretty good tether this morning. So uh, let's look at it. And I want to ask you, first of all, to think with me about the request of the two sisters. It's found there in those opening words of John 11. In verses 1 through 3, we read again, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, up till this point, this man Lazarus is an unknown, not only in John, but in the Gospels. We don't have any record of him. Uh, The closest thing we get to him is the Lazarus of Luke 16, with whom he bears no connection. The poor man, remember, that's laid at the gate of the rich man, who fain would have filled his belly with those dog's crumbs, you know. He hadn't had really no... no, uh, connection here. And yet there is a connection with the other Gospels that John brings out in verse 2. 
And this is something that I believe as he writes the last gospel. There are some who believe John's gospel was first, not many. But uh, one man in particular uh, of the last generation wrote a book in which he argued for John's gospel being first. I'm surprised, but he did it. Not read the book, but he argued that. Most believe it was last, and I believe that's accurate because John seems to build a lot of times on Matthew, Mark, and Luke in his gospels. And his gospel, and as he does that, he's relying on the knowledge that his readers would have gained from those writers as they gave us the gospels. And that's evident, I think, even in this parenthetic remark in verse 2. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now you don't read that in John's gospel to the next chapter, chapter 12. That's right before the triumphal entry when Mary does this act of worship to our Lord and in anticipation of his burial. And as she does that... Uh, you, you have no record, no inkling, no indication of that in John's Gospel. But John's again assuming, I believe, that many of his readers will have read the Gospels that speak about that. Mary's mentioned in the Gospels, and some of you remember that even our Lord in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he records how what Mary has done in anticipation of his resurrection would be a memorial to her wherever the Gospels preached. And that's happened. There's a woman named Mary who's known throughout the world because of that act of love to the Lord Jesus Christ that she did in anticipation of His burial, but also, I believe, is an act of worship because He had raised her brother whom she loved, but more importantly, whom Jesus loved. And that meant the world to her, I believe. So when the opportunity was hers to take that ointment of spikenard, that alabaster box and break it and pour it out on Jesus' feet and then wipe His feet with her hair, it was something that was small to her because He had become more precious to her through what He had done sometime, almost immediately before that event, in raising her brother. So John gives us this background about Mary, and as he does, we read the the note that follows, verse 3, Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, I've given you by way of a, a portion here the request of the sisters. But you'll notice there's no request that's directly stated in the word they send. Simply the news, he... Whom thou lovest is sick. Lord, behold. Lord, check it out. Lord, here's a heads up. The one whom you love is sick. Now, what's significant about that is the request, I think, is latent in in the news, in the announcement. In other words, there's no direct statement. Come and heal him. Come see about him. Please, Lord, come check on him. It's implied. It's implicit in the statement. He whom you love is sick. Because when we think about the reality of who Jesus was in His public ministry, the miracles that He did, the the things that are recorded of Him throughout the Gospels, and uh, even you remember when John the Baptist was in prison and he'd been there according to Josephus' testimony probably about a year at Machairus with an earshot of Herod's palace and he sends, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And he sends two of his disciples with that question 
And it says in Dr. Luke's account in Luke 7 that at that hour Jesus did many miracles and told them, Go and show John the things which you've seen. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed, the uh, dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of that in the space of that hour when they had come to ask that question. So, so we know that the Lord Jesus had unlimited power to show that He is God's King. He is God Himself who has come to undo what sin has done in the world. Now that being true then, their statement makes good sense. He whom you love is sick. Lord, get over here quick. Now, just seems to me that that's a good request because Jesus has power to do what needs to be done to take care of Lazarus but even the words themselves they almost seem incongruous if you think about it he whom you love is sick there's a teaching today that would say those words don't make sense at all the health and wealth group. I like the way, you know, one person put it. We've heard name it and claim it. One person said, blab it and grab it, call it and haul it. <laughs> and for them, these words don't make sense. He whom you love is sick. No, that doesn't happen to God's people. Because God's people are people of faith, and as people of faith, they don't fall prey to sickness. And they surely don't know what poverty is. You know, the things that so often characterize the triumphalism of a view that falls short of Scripture. Now, I believe God does heal. And as our brother prayed concerning God using means or not for Brother Gary, I believe that God can heal. God does heal. But I don't believe it's always God's will to heal. And I think we have Scripture that will back that up. And yet so often our expectation is, Lord, do it. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as it's a submissive spirit. And these sisters, I think they were certainly aware of what the Lord Jesus had done in their anticipation that He would come and do something for their brother. And so we see then the request of the two sisters. Along with that, though, I want to ask you to notice the recurrence of two statements we find here. Uh, there's that statement about the love of the Savior to which we've already called your attention. Notice again verse 3. Therefore his sister sent at him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And then Mark reiterates that in verse 5. He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Sometime back on a Sunday night we spoke from Luke 10 about uh, Mary and Martha and about Martha's desire, you remember, to make sure the meal was just right, that the, the turnip greens weren't overcooked and the pinto beans weren't scorched and wasn't any ham there or pork that night because it was kosher but to make sure that the meal was just so. But she was overwhelmed. And Mary wasn't moved by that. Because Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet, drinking in His words. 
Jesus had found respite in this home in Bethany. He had come to love it as he would go maybe to the feast at Jerusalem and he was an observant Jew made of a woman, made under the law and he did that. He, he obeyed the law and its demand that he would go up three times a year. It, it seems obvious in the Gospels, especially John. He did that. So he, he apparently as he made his way stopped by Bethany which was on the east side of Jerusalem in that region of the Mount of Olives. He would stop by and he would take respite there. He was busy in his ministry. He was healing. He was teaching. Oftentimes when he was in Galilee, he and his disciples had no time for themselves. And I have a feeling that when he got to their home, he felt like he was on holiday, as the Brits would say. He felt like he was there in a situation where uh, everything was unplugged. The cell phone was off. There were no demands. And he just felt that he could lift up his feet and kick up his heels and enjoy himself. So I believe there was a special love for these. Sister two. Two sisters, a brother. We don't know anything about any mates. Nothing stated there. But a place of refuge for the Lord Jesus. And so John underscores that in those words of verse 5. And then again in verse 11. When Jesus breaks the news to his disciples in a very soft way about Lazarus' death, we read, These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Notice again the words that are used to define Lazarus. Our friend. I like that because you know later in John's Gospel, the Lord will tell his disciples, John 15, Henceforth I call you not servants, I call you friends. And it's a significant title, I believe, because again, it speaks of the place that this one occupies in the life of the Lord Jesus. It speaks of the love that he had. And, And for us who know him, I would say we need to keep in mind before us that the love that he had for Lazarus is no greater than the love that he has for us. But if we think about that, that's where some of the incongruence comes in. Because if He loves us, why are we sometimes sick? If He loves us on July 16th a year ago, why did Brother Earl have a stroke? And I bless the Lord with you, Sister Dietrich, and what He's done for him. Why to... As one rabbi wrote, and this is not a book that I'd recommend, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a little bit of a mistaken title, isn't it? When you think of the fact that there are no good people. But if we want to change the title, and I think one brother did, why do bad things happen to God's people? And that's part of what's going on here and I see it work when this emphasis is found on Lazarus being loved by the Lord, Lazarus being the friend of the Lord and, and, and the, the, the reality of what he had in terms of relationship with the Lord Jesus Oftentimes, it's not something that we can figure and it's interesting in the Gospel of John that these words are used because You'll remember that as the author of the book, John uses a special description about himself. He is, again and again, referenced as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
I may have told you. I think I might have. If I did, you can just listen again. I was in Hamrick sometime back after Christmas. This had been about a year ago or more, a year and a half ago. I think I was returning something, uh, Christmas gift or something. I can't. But there was a black lady who was in line there, customer service, and she had on a she had on a shirt that said, "God loves you too," but I'm his favorite. And I said, "Sister, I like your shirt, but I'm his favorite." And she said, "No, you're not." But that's the sense you get here about Lazarus. He's one of the Lord's favorites. And you know what? Every one of us are. Uh, We sing sometimes, Mr. Watts Hymn, We're Marching to Zion. Of course, Ralph Hudson added the chorus. Mr. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote, First of all, come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. And his second stanza, there's actually another stanza inserted that I really like. Uh, the sorrows of the mind be banished from this place. Religion never was designed to make our joys be less. That's a good one. I hate that dropped out. But the, 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 the next one says, and I have to get my train of thought again, the, the next one says, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. And then we sing, But children of the heavenly King. But as I understand it, Mr. Watts wrote, First of all, But favorites of the heavenly King may speak their joys abroad. And Mr. Spurgeon tells about a man who wouldn't sing it that way. He sang instead, but subjects of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad, to which Mr. Spurgeon responded, he may want to deem himself a subject. I like thinking of myself as a favorite. And that's what you and I, as God's people, can know. The objects of his special love in Christ the focus of His everlasting love. We can hear Him say to us what He said to Jeremiah, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn thee. But sometimes, the irritants of life make that seem harder. And I think that's where the sisters are at this point. There's another statement, though, that I would call to your attention. Not only the love of the Savior there, but also the recurrence of this statement that focuses on the power of the statement. It's seen on the lips of the sisters, but it's also seen on the lips of the crowd that was gathered there to comfort Mary and Martha. Notice, please, verse 21. When Martha greets our Lord, we read this. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. There's the recognition that the Lord Jesus' presence itself would have affected the healing of Lazarus in the midst of his sickness. The idea that, Lord, you delayed it. If you'd have come immediately, maybe. But there's something else we have to factor in that John's already given us in chapter 4. The second miracle that he records, not the second miracle that Jesus does, but the second miracle records when Jesus comes back to Galilee after being in Jerusalem, making his way through Samaria. Remember Sychar, the Samaritan woman, the woman in the well? As he makes his way back into Galilee, there's a nobleman who sends word, my my, my son is sick, come ere my son die, come before he dies. And Jesus says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
And he says, Go home, your son lives. And when he got home, servants were coming to greet him and say, Your son's better. He's better. And he said, What time did that happen yesterday? I said, About so and so. He said, Well, that's the very time that I met Jesus. And he said, You. And basically what Jesus was showing is my power doesn't depend on my physical presence. My power doesn't depend on the fact that I'm there. And that's something these sisters had not yet factored in. They had not integrated into their thinking about the Lord Jesus. That that He didn't have to be there for Lazarus to live. And that will lead us to something else, Lord willing, we'll see in just a moment. And that is that if Jesus didn't do it from a distance, then He had a good reason for not doing it from a distance. But right now the thought is, if you'd been here, my brother not died. Notice the statement, it's just found next, not on the lips of Martha, but on the lips of Mary. In verse 32, when Mary hears from Martha that Jesus has come and she wants to uh, see Him, He's calling for her. She goes out hastily, and in verse 32 we read, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell down at His feet, saying unto Him, Lord, if Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Is there an echo in this place? She's saying the same thing that Martha. Why? Well, because she's convinced of Jesus' power. But I would add, and I'm not saying this to criticize, she doesn't know enough of Jesus' power in one sense. Because again, Lazarus' healing wasn't dependent on the physical presence of Jesus. Now sometimes, and as I say, I'm not being critical because there are a lot of prescribed ways that I think God should act. There are a lot of prescribed ways that I think God should do things. And Uh, you know, I hate to say this in front of Terry, but men can get angry. <laughs> she said, mm-hmm. Glad she didn't yell amen. Uh, but now we men aren't alone. I think ladies can get angry too. But sometimes our anger, anger can go heavenward. Because we look at the fact that this happened or that happened. And as we look at it, because of the fact, I believe, that we've often have prescribed ways that we believe God should work, we didn't see it happen in that prescribed manner that we would have dictated, and therefore our anger wells up. And I. I could enlarge on it, but I think you know what I mean. But sometimes it's so slight. Things that are so insignificant. But I wonder why they're happening, you know. I'm trying to get out the door and something falls and spills, you know. I mean, that's small, right? But, I mean... You think? Yeah, I see Terry cutting her eyes like that's stupid, David. But you know, I'm on point. I'm gonna call you. Uh, but you see, here, here, here's here's the prescription in my mind. God rules. God's king. God is sovereign. But that happened. <laughs> Why did that happen? If God's sovereign, He knows I'm trying to get out the door. 
and that's small, but you can enlarge that if you want exponentially. And what happens is a lot of times we have that box that we prescribed for how God ought to deal with things, and because it didn't happen that way, there's frustration or disappointment or anger in our lives. And I'm not pointing one finger at you without having three point back at myself. One final statement in which this is seen. Please notice in John 11, the Jews in verse 37, as they see Jesus weeping and they've commented already, behold how He loved Him. In verse 37 we read, And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? They're remarking on the love of Christ for him as they've seen him weeping now at the graveside. And I believe when we read Jesus wept, it wasn't any slight measure of tears. I don't know, but that his physique, his, his frame arched over in tears because of what he was seeing, witnessing. We'll say more about that in a moment, Lord willing, but... Again, there's a limitation for the Jews because as they say, if this man, his most recent miracle that had impacted Jerusalem was the healing of that blind man at the pool of Siloam when the Lord had made spittle and mud to, or made spittle and dust to make mud for his eyes and told him to go wash, remember? And, and, and that miracle had gotten great press in Jerusalem. And so now they're saying, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that this man not die? But again, there's a prescribed element about that. And what is it? He could only have helped before death. In other words, it's over now because he's dead. But the reality is it's not over because this man is the resurrection and the life. And this man has the power not only to heal Lazarus before he dies, but to bring him back four days dead from the grave. And again, there's that limitation of faith that I too am so guilty of. Because I look in that prescribed way of how He should do things. And I forget He's bigger than my box. As a matter of fact, He doesn't like my box. As a matter of fact, He's going to tear my box all to pieces. Because I can't wall Him in. I wish I could preach right now. Because He's too big to be boxed in. He's too great and He's too glorious for us to be able with the attitude of our minds to say, that's all. Because if He's yours, it's never all. And that, brothers and sisters, is I believe part of why John gives us this preamble to resurrection so that you and I can connect with something of what he had seen as he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as he could write, the Word was made flesh and we what? Beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of His fullness have all we received in grace for grace. 
I think John, if I could use the illustration from the 70s, when John finally, after the resurrection, caught hold of who Jesus was, he said, wow. And then he said it backwards, wow. That's what we used to say in the 70s. I was out in Oregon preaching in the 90s and one of Norm Wells' daughters said, yeah, you can say it backwards and upside down, Mom. <laughs> that was free, no extra charge. But I believe John was overwhelmed with the sense of the gift that God has given us in the person of His Son. And I believe, brothers and sisters, one problem we have is a lot of times we're underwhelmed instead of overwhelmed. Because we haven't focused on the fullness of grace and truth that's found in the person of His Son. And that, I believe, is why John gives us this preface, this preamble to resurrection. Now, that's the power of the Savior that's seen in those two statements as well as the love of the Savior. Quickly with me, notice, please, the response of the Savior. And uh, there are several things here that I believe as well are intended to rattle our minds, to, to rattle the cage of our thinking. If you will, notice the Lord's words in verse 4 when He learns the, uh, the news of Lazarus being sick. When Jesus heard that, He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Here you cannot take that statement absolutely. This sickness is not unto death. You have to take it relatively. Because if you take it absolutely, you're going to say, but hold the phone, Lazarus died. But the thing that we've got to remember is beyond all of our earthly disappointments, God is at work through them in our lives bringing about His glory. And as He's doing that, then the One who is working all things for our good by His own firm promise in His Son, then His glory has to be my best. And that's going to happen with Lazarus. He's going to die. His sisters are going to weep. But they're going to welcome him back from the dead. I remember hearing Ravi Zacharias say, think about Lazarus after the resurrection. Somebody threatens him with death. <laughs> he says, I've already been there, man. You've got to get something better than death. <laughs> and can you imagine the sisters... Their brother is sitting in the house where they entertained Jesus after he'd been laid in a grave. And so this, these words, this sickness is not unto death. It's far more than an absolute statement, Lazarus is not going to die. It's a statement that says, as the resurrection and the life, I transcend death, so death is never the end. I'm greater than death. And that means that death is but an entry to glory. We sometimes forget that, don't we? As God's people. 
But our Lord had that view. And I think as our Savior says this, what He wants us to do is to gain that view that looks beyond this world. And in some measure, years ago I read a tract that was written by J.C. Ryle, the English preacher of the 1800s. (laughs) Mr. Ryle wrote a tract entitled, Refuse to Look at Second Causes. And what he meant by that is when something happens in your life that's dealt with you, dealt to you by an individual or by a group or by circumstance seemingly, don't look at the second cause. Look at the first cause, God. If you you think about that in terms of Genesis, think about a fellow named Joseph. And, And Joseph has been sold by his brothers. But, but he had these dreams before he was sold by his brothers that were revelatory in character that God had given him that said, you're going to be ruler and your brothers are going to bow to you. And some think he wasn't wise in telling that. I don't think Joseph had any malice of intent about that. Joseph was sharing and, you know, telling them and even Jacob didn't rest too well with it. But I can't help but believe that Joseph was sold Then he became a servant in Potiphar's house, rose to the top, and then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, and he wound up in the prison, and he rose to the top again, and he interpreted those dreams, and two full years passed, and that butler appeared to have forgotten him. I can't help but believe that Joseph refused to look at second causes. He realized, my pit time, isn't the end. My enslavement isn't the end. My prison time isn't the end. My being forgotten isn't the end. And brothers and sisters, God has goals. God has high and holy purposes for His people. And we can rest in that. And we need to learn to refuse to look at second causes. And I say that we very generously because I need to learn to refuse to look at second causes. Because a lot of times my eyes are on the immediate cause of my difficulty or my trouble. And I don't say, Hallelujah! Another trial! (laughs) Glory! (laughs) Got any more, Lord? No, no, it's... uh, And more. But this sickness was not to death. Because ultimately the Son of God was going to be glorified thereby as He stood by the graveside of Lazarus and spoke, Lazarus come forth and he that was dead came forth. And the Son of God's glory was achieved. And God is at work in us similarly. Let's notice another, well, yes, if you would. I've got several things here that mark the Savior's statement. Verse 11 Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. It brings us along the way, and his disciples misunderstood. Because if somebody's fevered and somebody's sick, a lot of times they don't rest well. So if he's sleeping, then he must be improving. But our Lord didn't mean that. Instead, he meant that Lazarus was dead. And as he did that, he had to tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then... He makes this statement, verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. 
In other words, the Lord Jesus says, not only is this trial of Lazarus for my glory, it's also so that your faith can be increased. That you as disciples can learn how absolutely and utterly trustworthy I am. Even though you know that we got the message two days ago that he's sick, and we've waited here before we begin to make our trek to Bethany, you know that I'm trustworthy. And that leads me to the next point, his delay, verse 6. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. When he gets to the grave and he says, roll away the stone, take you away the stone, the, the protest of Martha is, Lord, he's been dead four days. He stinketh. Lord, there's an odor now that accompanies his body, even with the spices. But Jesus delayed, and here's, I think, again, part of the lesson for us about providence, is providence has its own schedule. Because God is king, and He knows the end from the beginning, and He knows better than you and I do what we need, God has His own schedule. Uh, I like the way that I've heard it in the black church. I've had the privilege of preaching in black churches, and uh, one song that I've heard more than once, more than a few times, is this. I won't sing it for you. I'd love to because it kind of moves pretty good. But it says, He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. Job said He may not come when you want Him to, but He'll be there right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, He is. Now, in a southern gospel song, the experience of Lazarus was put in a, in a, in a metrical way differently. It was this by way of the chorus. He may be four days late, but he's always on time. You see, he showed up, as it were, four days late. Lord, he's been dead four days. If you'd have been here, he'd not have died. He may be four days late, but he's still going to be on time because his schedule is the schedule that makes sense. Not my schedule. Because... Again, my box is too small for him. My schedule just won't work. But his schedule is perfect. Now, in the trials of life, that may not make sense again to us. Why did Robert Murray Machine die at age 29? Why did Borden die about the same age, I believe? Why, does some, why did Jim Elliott and his four companions die at the hands of the Arcus. I can't explain that. But I know this. God is utterly trustworthy. And we bow before Him. Now, I'm going to say more about some, another side of that in just a moment. So hang on. I'm going to get through, but there, there's an aspect of this that we've got to go down the other side of the road too. Because in His sovereign kingship, He is not removed from the greatest of sympathies toward us in our trials. And we see that in the sympathy of the Savior here. Do you remember what Isaiah called Him? What was that, Terry? Did you say man of sorrows? Hmm? Okay. Man of sorrow. Well, I'll check her later. 
That'd be a good college question, wouldn't it, Brother Ken? Isaiah, remember, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We forget that about our Savior, don't we? We lose sight of the fact that that's who He was in His flesh. And, and as such, that sympathy that marks Him is seen here as He wept. Jesus wept. Verse 35. Shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, I've mentioned to you before my preacher friend, Brother Ward. Been with the Lord about now 13 years. April of 08, he died. Black preacher friend. Uh, sometimes when he would preach meetings in other churches away from home, he would uh, he would get a call from his wife, Bryn, and she would say, "How's it going, honey?" He said, "Bryn, they don't even know Jesus wept here." Well, I, I asked him about that one time because I, I thought I understood. You know, the shortest verse in the Bible. They don't even know it. But he said. He said, what happened is in, in black households it was customary for somebody to quote a scripture as well as say a prayer before the meal. And uh, he said he was eating in a black home one time before revival service and one of the guys said, somebody say Jesus wept. And he looks at, what does that mean, Elder? And the Elder had to explain to him about the custom and about, you know, short, somebody say Jesus wept because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. You can say the prayer and then eat, right? Quick. <laughs> but 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 that verse has been used why? Because of the setting, because of the sympathy of the Savior, that here he is at the graveside. And he's not steely. I heard some time back about a a, a, a woman, a brother quoted in a sermon, a woman who said, My child died. And I was so resigned to the providence of God that I shed not one tear. To me, that's not human. Because Jesus wept. That, and the Bible says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, remember. Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Why? Concerning them that are asleep, that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. He didn't mean that you sorrow not absolutely. Right. He meant that you sorrow not relatively. Right. In other words, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We do sorrow though. Yes. We do weep. We do mourn. And I've got a precedent for that. I mean a divine precedent. Jesus wept. But not only was there the sympathy that's evident as He wept, there is also in what John records there in verse 33 and then also in verse 38 that shows to me that He has the tenderest sympathy toward us in the present constraint of this system, of this cosmos that is marked by sin. Notice the words of verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her, Mary weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The, the word groaned in the spirit is, in the Greek is, is in embrimaomai. Excuse me. It's a contract verb. And it's used of a horse, Norton Fury, in regard to horses. But 
it speaks of being troubled in a way that almost of anger. And it shows me again something of the heart of Christ with regard to what sin has done in the world. And it happens again in verse 38. As He goes to the grave, we read, Jesus therefore again groaning in Himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Again, Jesus groaning, that word embrimaomai, has the idea of Jesus not only groaning, but in His groaning there's an anger that marks Him as He looks at what sin has done. And the idea is, the other side of the road, as I said, from what we understand about Him being sovereign over our trials, the sympathy of Christ, and the best way I can explain it is, we had the privilege of going to a conference in Annapolis some years ago. Terry and the family and I. And uh, they had some heavyweights there. There was Os Guinness who was uh, under Francis Schaeffer at uh, Labrie over in uh, Switzerland. And he, you know, philosophically and theologically, man, he's got his I's and his T's dotted and crossed right, you know. And... Uh, John Piper was there, whom some of you may know of from up in Minneapolis. And, and they were having a discussion. And this was right after a missionary in Peru was flying with his wife. And because he didn't identify, something happened, radio connection. The Peruvian Air Force fired on him and his wife was, no, her husband was killed actually. And one of the papers in the States asked her, what what he had to say to that? And this was a response. A sovereign bullet killed my husband. And what she was reflecting on were Elizabeth Elliot's words when Jim was killed. They asked her and she said, a sovereign spear killed my husband. Well, I kind of differ with Ms. Elliot. I would have preferred to say a spear that was under the hand of a sovereign God killed my husband. And so they asked Osginis about this. And Osginis said, and and John, let me just say this beforehand. John Piper got angry with Os's answer. Because John, you may know, his mother and his father, who was an evangelist, were over in Israel. And his mother was killed in a bus accident in which she stepped in front of a bus and was killed. And so for John, the sovereignty of God brings great comfort to his heart in knowing that what seemed like a freakish accident about his mother was under the hand of God. And it was. But that's not how Os chose to answer the question. Os Guinness instead told about a man who was a supporter of Francis Schaeffer over in France when Schaeffer had Labrie. And this man had, I believe it was an 18-year-old son who was killed in a car wreck. And the man called Francis Schaeffer looking for some help. And Francis Schaeffer answered him in terms of what he called the absurdity of evil. In other words, how the presence of sin in this world never makes sense. Now, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you want to pull away from that. But there's an aspect of Scripture that addresses that. Romans chapter 8 tells us that the whole creation has been what? Subjected to vanity. 
subjected to bondage, subjected to corruption, by reason of him who subjected the same in hope, but it's all there. That that's part of what this cosmic travel is 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 marked by corruption, bondage, vanity, emptiness. That's why Solomon could say in Ecclesiastes, "Vanity of vanity, empty of emptiness is all is emptiness." And, and you and I enjoy life sometimes, and it seems we're riding high, and things are good on the mountaintop. And then something kerplunks us back to earth. And we realize as we look at that, I'm not there yet. I'm not home yet. Because the world has been subjected to emptiness, to futility, to frustration. And one of the greatest evidences of that frustration, that futility, that emptiness, that vanity is death. And here our Lord is at the graveside of Lazarus. And as He sees the impact on the sisters, as He sees the impact on the Jews, as He knows Lazarus is laying a corpse in that grave, the Lord Jesus is angry. Angry in a righteous way. Angry to say, Death, I'm going to put an end to you. Sin, I'm going to bring you to an end. And you're no longer in a world that I will recreate. You're no longer going to do this. I'm going to do away with you. I'm going to do away with the emptiness. I'm going to do away with the vanity. I'm going to do away with the corruption. I'm going to do away with the bondage. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I'm going to make an installment right now because I'm going to bring this man out of the grave. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the kingdom. That's the power of what Jesus came to do. And He will not rest till He's accomplished what He came to do fully. He did it. Don't misunderstand me. He said it is finished. He accomplished it. But He hadn't carried it all out yet. And one day, He's going to unroll it all. Hallelujah. One day... One day, he's going to turn it loose. And what he taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Brother and sister, you and I are going to see the fullness of that. Because Christ is victor. And in the sympathy that He feels toward His people and with His people, He says, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to take care of it. Wait on Me. Trust Me. Believe Me. And that, brothers and sisters, is what He goes on to do. He goes on to accomplish that by His activity. And let me remind you, he ain't finished yet. The fat lady ain't sang yet. I know, I know that it's finished as far as you, what Don Carson likes to call the principial victory took place at the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent. Yes. But we killed a snake last. Well, I didn't. Samuel did. We had some copperheads in the yard last April. I don't know if I told you about it. But 
I did? No? Okay. Little baby first going toward the chicken coop. Right by the fire pile, pile fire fire pit. Samuel killed it. Took the took a chopping instrument and pretty well severed its head. And and then a few minutes later mama showed up, I reckon. She was bigger and she was meaner, I know. And Samuel did the same thing with her, dispatched her. Well, it was a cool night that April. The next day I went out to burn some stuff at the burn pit, fire pit. And that snake whose head was just about completely, fully severed. No life, I'm convinced. It started as the fire got to its cold bones, cold-blooded animal. It started wriggling. It wriggled so much it wriggled in the fire and it really started dancing then. Why do I say that? Well, at the cross, Christ busted the head of the serpent. The victory's been won. But the serpent's still wriggling in this world that's been subjected to vanity. In this world that's under the bondage of corruption. In this world where futility and frustration still seemingly have a heavy hand. But... The victory he secured in which the head of the serpent was crushed shall be fully carried out. And let us rest in that, brothers and sisters. And as John takes us to the graveside, John wants us to remember his truth is marching on. We're headed somewhere. I'm glad to be on the trip. I'm glad to know who my captain is. I'm glad to know who my king is. And because of that, I rest. Now, I don't rest all the time. There are still frustrating moments. But I can rest even when I'm frustrated if I will rest by reminding myself of the one in whom I trust, our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, may we take these lessons and as we visit the graveside of Lazarus, may we remember to always keep our eyes fixed on the One who is the resurrection and the life. Amen.